Welcome to Ideas Matter and to our new series, The Use and Abuse of History. This podcast features the first full-length lecture and is entitled A War on the Past. To give some context to the talk and to introduce the lecturer, Professor Frank Ferradi, I'm handing over to Mo Lovett, the National Convener of Debating Matters, the BOI Charity's sixth form debating competition. It certainly seems that history and competing versions of history have come to the fore in the battleground of our present day culture wars. Debates about historical events spark contestation and fierce debate and yet somehow seem to do little to bring the academic study of history to life. And um, it often seems that how you interpret the past, which version of the past you prefer, um, can be displayed like a badge of identity, a badge of pride, which says something about who you are in the present. And thus the historical narratives themselves can seem somehow slightly flattened. So is E.H. Carr right when he says that the presentation of past events tell us more about the thoughts and perspectives of the person doing the history and about the times they are living in? The Italian dramatist Pirandello once had one of his characters say that a fact is like a sack, a corn sack or a rice sack. It won't stand up if it is empty. It must be filled with the reasons and feelings that caused it in the first place. But are we filling these metaphorical sacks with the reasons reasons and feelings of what caused them in the first place or how we feel about them today? And how much does any of that really matter? Um, I'm delighted to introduce Professor Frank Faridi to take us through some of these questions and many, many more, I'm sure. Frank won't need much of an introduction to our regular academy attendees as he has been a regular lecturer at many previous events. He is a sociologist and a commentator and the author of a huge number of books. I can't possibly list them all today, but just suffice to say that in the last 12 months, he has published two books. Um, One, Why Borders Matter, and the second, Democracy Under Siege, Don't Let Them Lock It Down. And perhaps most interestingly for today, this one, Mythical Past, Elusive Future, which came out in 1992, And for me, it was really fascinating just to delve back into this book after almost 30 years, 30 years, everyone. (laughs) And I just want to uh, finish up by pulling out a little short quote from the book um, in which Frank says, the fact that different lessons are drawn from the past at different times confirms that it's the teachers who teach and what they make of history depends above all on the shifting consensus about the past that changes with every generation. And I think that quote really stands up well today. Um, And of course, it is today and today's events that we're mostly uh, concerned with. So I will now welcome uh, and hand over to Professor Frank Frady to give us his thoughts on a war on the past. Uh, Thanks very much, Mo. I wish you hadn't mentioned the 30 years. Uh, That's a long time. That's three decades. And when I look back upon when that book came out and compare it to now, one of the things that really strikes me is the way in which contemporary Western culture has become overwhelmed by what I think is is its most unattractive feature, which is its uh, obsessive presentism. Uh, The word presentism, I think is often used, it's very rarely explored, Uh, but I think uh, as as hopefully will be clear by the end of the discussion, in recent years, presentism has almost acquired an ideological form. The uh, important, dynamic that underlies presentism is society's estrangement from its own past, from its own legacy, from its own 
uh, sort of way of being and, and living for a very long time. And one of the consequences of that uh, is that there's a continuous tendency to erode the borders of the line between the present and the past. It's almost as if we kind of casually kind of go back and forth. And in particular, what presentism does uh, is that uh, historically and literally, it evaluates everything from the standpoint of today. So whenever we're looking at the Roman Empire or ancient Greece or the British Empire, it's always assessed in terms of the values that have kicked in in recent times. And as a result of that, what you have, and it's become a very kind of favorite exercise of the cultural, uh, contemporary cultural establishment, is they continue like to compare themselves uh, and castigate the characters of the past, almost as if they're flattering themselves by saying, look, look at these people, uh, how sexist or racist or how classes they were uh, compared to us. The main expression of presentist history is the uh, use of the analogy. And in particular, you will hear the refrain time and time again in recent times, it's just like the 30s. When I began to look at presentism and the use of analogy in recent times, I was actually quite surprised because I'm not a professional historian. I was quite su uh, surprised to realize that in current historiography, as to say the study of history, people actually defend presentism and argue that arguing by analogy is really unbalanced, not a bad thing. There's a very interesting article by Peter Gordon in a recent issue of the, of the New York Review of Books, where he more or less says, along with other people, that for example, if you want to understand fascism better, one of the ways you can understand it is by looking at populism today. And the more we look at populism or Trumpism today, the more it will give us insight of what, what fascism was really all about. So what you end up is this kind of flattened version, uh, nonsense version of fascism, where any of its specific dynamics is eroded. And you, you know, the way we look at the problems of today, instead of saying, well, that's, that's the way we're struggling to make a sense of our reality, <clears throat> actually serves as a methodological tool for understanding what, you know, what fascism was really all about. And the implication of that is that people in those days or other writers about fascism never really understood what the Weimar Republic was really all about. Uh, I think one of the important things to understand, and this is a, a discussion that we'll have, I'm sure, in our, in our society for the next decade or so, is that presentism tends to expand both into the future and into the past. I think one of the things that you, we, we need to really grasp is that when we talk about presentism, it's not just simply the avoidance of, uh, of understanding the past, it's also projecting the present into the future. I think one of the clearest ways you can see, for example, the way presentism uh, sort of takes itself into the future is by the way in which the precautionary principle has become sacralized. Because the precautionary principle, which has kicked in in relation to vaccination recently, uh, basically argues the notion that uh, our, our need for precaution and our need for responsibility for generations not yet born makes us liable for what's going to happen, you know, sort of in decades and decades to come. So the distinction between the consequences of action in the here and now and the future becomes pretty much kind of eroded. And therefore what you have is on the one hand, a projection of the present to the future, 
And what you also have is, of course, a, a situation where uh, we also have uh, a projection of the present into the past. And the, and, and the way that's expressed today is by expressions and, and, and phrases like the duty to remember. The duty to remember doesn't just simply mean that, you know, that we, have, we should remember what has, what has gone on, but it also means a duty to remember in order to make amends for the past. So you make amends not for what you've done, what you and I have done. You make amends for what our ancestors have done in the past. And more importantly, and this is one of the interesting and unique features of recent times, is that we're asked to fix the problems of today by rewriting the past. In a sense, we are fixing uh, our own problems by, uh, in a sense, by returning to the past and fixing it. What presentism does is it promotes uh, what I call a history of accusation or accusatory history, where you're continually accusing events and characters and governments and regimes in the past uh, with a tremendous degree of immediacy, which I think is itself almost requires uh, the, the tools of psychology to totally understand. And I think what's, uh, one of the things that's interesting about it is that presentism calls for both a break from the past. We, we mustn't be like our ancestors were. We must acknowledge all these horrible things that have occurred. Uh, but it does so in a way that adopts a very insecure, presentist, narcissistic mode. Um, and, and whilst it's doing that, and while it's constructing its own identity in relation to the past, um, it doesn't just want to break from the past, but it wants to embrace the past. So you get this interesting thing, which of course is actually quite understandable, given the fact that so much of our identity is rooted in some version or another of what the past is all about. One of the key points I'd like to draw to your attention that kind of comes out for this, and maybe we could discuss it at some point, is that all identities are rooted in the past, which is why in the very act of rejecting for example, the legacy of Britain or the legacy of America's past and, and declare war on it, in the, very, uh, in the very act of rejecting the past, there's an impulse to construct an alternative version that legitimate, legitimates people's identity. So therefore, you know, when we're talking about the war on the past, what you have is this paradoxical, you know, sort of double-sided process, relationship, where on the one hand, you reject the past, but in the, in, the, in the course of rejecting the past, your own identity becomes uprooted. Your own identity becomes weakened because it no longer has a clear relationship to anything that has gone on beforehand. You can't position yourself in relation to the past. And as you're doing that, you kind of attempt to recreate your identity by developing an alternative version of what the past is all about. That's one of the main cultural dynamics that, it, that has kicked in, particularly uh, in the Anglo-American world, but I think it's something that is quite important uh, in most, uh, most parts of the world. Uh, of course, you could argue, if you look back over history, that there are many examples in previous times when different groups and different parties have sought to rewrite history with a view to vindicating their identity. You look at the 19th century, uh, that, that, is, that, that, that is quite important, uh, uh, very much a, a part of that history. But I think there are some very distinct features 
uh, that mark out our relationship to the past and our attempt to fight it and kind of react against it. I think that to understand it, I like to discuss a concept that was raised by Eric Hobsbawm and other historians, which is the concept of the sense of the past, the sense of the past. And in particular, what I want to do is explore uh, the loss of the sense of the past, which is something that uh, I think is very much uh, implicit in our cultural norms. If you take a long view of history, we can understand, not that long, but of modern times, we can understand that at some point in the 20th century, the Western world became estranged from the authoritative status of the past, and has gradually adopted one of rejecting it more or less altogether. The obituary of the past was uh, eloquently uh, summed up by the title of the historian J.H. Plum's book, The Death of the Past, which was published in 1969. And though uh, Plum himself was sympathetic to the death of the past in some sense, he observed that whenever we look in all areas of social and personal life, the hold of the past is weakening. Now, how did this come about? There's a number of reasons, but I think the most important element in this is, uh, is, is a concept that the French historian Daniel Halevi uh, developed in the 1930s, which is referred to as the acceleration of history. What the acceleration of history refers to is the increase in the psychic distance between us here and, think, and the people and, and the cultures that preceded us. And you'll find that the, the, in everyday life, the way that the acceleration of history is expressed, and you get this in all domains of intellectual and cultural life, is through the insistence that the world is changing at a faster rate than ever before. You find this, uh, this refrain time and time again throughout the 20th and 21st century. We need to change the way we educate. We need to change the way we conduct business because the world is changing faster than ever before. And this idea of ceaseless change, that at no time in the past did the world change as fast as now, underpins uh, the way that this past is viewed. I think uh, the, um, a lot of the histor historians who are struggling with the concept of time often deal with this problem one-sidedly because they haven't looked at the social and the philosophical aspects of this idea of the acceleration of history. They often go along with the fact that indeed, we live in an ever-changing world. The world has never changed as rapidly as now. And they don't understand that very often when we talk about the acceleration of history, when the distance, the psychic distance between the present and the past is discussed, what we are really talking about is that we've lost the capacity to give meaning to the relationship between the present and the past. And as we lost this capacity, as our ability to make sense of our relationship to our own past diminishes, it seems to us that change becomes you know, almost like its own law. We kind of fetishize change. And that's to me is a very kind of re uh, recurrent uh, theme. And one of the important elements in this is that as you have this notion of history changing at an unprecedented level, is that increasingly what becomes uh, imprinted in our imagination is not continuity, not cultural continuity or not the for existence of links between what has gone on beforehand, but instead 
uh, its cultural discontinuity, which becomes the main prism through which we see our world and, and the way that the past has existed. This weakening of the past, not surprisingly, first gained momentum in the United States for obvious reasons. The United States is, a, is the new world. It's the new country. It, it continually contrasted itself to the old world that was left behind. And, but gradually, the, the kind of consciousness uh, of, uh, of, of, of the need to lose that sense of, of that past uh, migrated into, to, in, into Europe and to the rest of the Western world. And what I like to do uh, in the time that I've got is basically look at the four phases of the loss of the past, the four different themes that have come up time and time again in the way that uh, you know, sort of the past is regarded in modern times with a view to trying to tease out what is distinctive between the war against the past today. So the first phase uh, that I want to draw your attention to, I would call uh, the phase where the past is no longer relevant. And the idea that the past is no longer relevant is, is one of the artifacts of modernity. Unlike uh, previous history, where you see history as, as continuous, the modern world contrasts itself to the old world, the moderns against their ancestors. Uh, and in the United States, where this really begins to kick in, what you have uh, with modernity is a shift from seeing the past as a source of authority to seeing the future as the source of authority. And therefore, under those circumstances, you know, your traditions are no longer relevant. The legacy uh, uh, that, uh, of human civilization is no longer as important as you, as you imagined before. Uh, you get this particularly in American social science where uh, historical understanding gradually diminishes decade by decade. But you also get it within English liberal and utilitarian thinking where, for example, uh, Jeremy Bentham, the English philosopher, says that modern society has nothing to learn from the past, very much a, an important contrast with what has gone on beforehand. And many liberals, and such as uh, J.S. Mill, kind of go along with it. But what's interesting with liberalism, uh, 19th century English liberalism, is although they kind of react against the past, against the tradition, they, they also understand, unlike today, that they are still the beneficiaries of its legacy. They understand that there is some kind of insights, you know, that they're standing on the shoulders of the intellectuals and the, and the philosophers of the past. And many of them uh, still regarded at that point uh, that the past was an important resource for promoting progress in the future. But by and large, you know, the uh, attitude is that we've got to look forward into the future and we've got to leave our tradition behind. And it's almost as if uh, the past is regarded as a burden. And that kind of kicks in in the mid-19th century. It kind of acquires uh, cultural uh, sort of hegemony by the turn of the 20th century um, and, and, and is more or less becomes uh, the dominant way that you know, people in universities are thought above, well, except for the most conservative section uh, of the discipline. Phase two represents an important shift. Because in phase two, what you have is, is the conception that the past is no longer simply irrelevant, but the past is an obstacle to the future. 
It's actually an obstacle, not just a burden, but an obstacle. And during uh, the late 19th century, some of these ideas begin to kick in. Uh, this sentiment was most consistently articulated by commentators and intellectuals associated with the American progressive movement. And I think uh, the studying the American progressive movement is well worth repaying because they, more than any other movement, acts as a bridge between uh, that tradition of anti uh, of, of hostility to the past and the more kind of uh, wokish, you know, sort of uh, zeal zealous uh, sort of uh, struggles that are being waged against uh, against the past today. But you, for example, when you read someone like the American economist uh, Seligman, who's a prominent progressive economist, he writes, from an American point of view, there is little value in the past. On the contrary, it's a burden that needs to be dis uh, discarded. And if any of you are, are familiar with the writings of the American philosopher John Dewey, and Dewey is probably the most prominent intellectual figure in the progressive movement, is continually arguing uh, that, uh, that, that, that the idea of, uh, of, of the past and the tradition represents a, an incredible obstacle to progress. We need to fundamentally revolutionize education to the point at which we rid ourselves of this kind of uh, negative kind of, kind of burden. And what happens uh, is that these kinds of ideas get a tremendous force and a, and, and a tremendous momentum from the experience of the First World War because what happens in the First World War uh, is that uh, kind of cultural and political trauma kicks in, where essentially people begin to blame the terrible catastrophe of that war on the legacy of the past, on the ideas and the, and the principles and the values that has really kind of gone on. And, and increasingly, at that point, it's, it's argued that we've got to get rid of the old ways of thinking. We've got to re-educate our young we got to have a different approach and a different understanding of the way that that kind of world works. And it's that, I think then that you have this first really important uh, sign that presentism in the way that we see it today is beginning to emerge. And, and, and you can see it's traced very, very clearly. I think one of the most uh, important texts that points this out is the German philosopher Edmund Husserl, who in his uh, crisis of, of Europe, of, of European science, writes, and he, the way that he puts it, about the, how Western society was caught up in what he calls the spell of our time. Society being caught up in the spell of our time, almost like a, an inability to kind of uh, see the connection uh, that still links it to the legacy that's gone on beforehand. And is becoming gradually, increasingly, uh, sort of uh, uneasy in its relationship to the future, and 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 at that point you get a, an extremely uh, sort of uh, strident, hostile orientation towards the past, and certainly because of the Second World War, which kind of repeats this negative experience. If you look at the uh, discussion and the literature, particularly as as, as voiced by the these new international organizations that are set up to avoid having wars in the future, things like the World Health Organization, things like UNESCO, basically what they're arguing for is we need new ideas, 
we got to get rid of the morality of our ancestors. And it's almost as if, you know, sort of uh, what they are talking about is not just old ideas, but untrue old ideas. So the ideas of the old, the values of the old are not just irrelevant or old, they are untrue. And gradually there's a kind of negativity uh, ex uh, sort of uh, expressed towards them. Phase three uh, is, is what I call, or what I kind of characterize as one, where the past is seen as being principally malevolent. So it's no longer simply uh, an obstacle. It's no longer irrelevant. The past is seen increasingly uh, as malevolent. And uh, there's a very interesting article written by, in the interwar period by the German sociologist, uh, Ferdinand Tönnies, and he writes about how the tendency of these of the new modernist technocratic institutions that are have begun to kick in in the 30s uh, express a veiled, what he calls a veiled hatred and contempt for tradition and for the customs of, of community life. And you'll find that from this period onwards, all the way to the 60s and the 70s, the word tradition becomes a pejorative term you have a very different way that these things are, are understood. And uh, what you have is the growth of an attitude that is explicitly committed, not just to distancing, but to morally, morally distancing the present from the past and, from, and, and, and to rupture the links that bind society to its historical tradition. It's in the 1960s and the 1970s that this loss of cultural continuity has the greatest impact on everyday life. It, it kind of migrates out of the university lecture hall and has a huge impact on the way that everyday life is conducted and, and is understood. And you find, for example, uh, the Marxist historian, Eric Tobsbon, described this process as a veritable cultural revolution. And he wrote quite astutely, he says, the breaking of the threads, which in the past, had woven human beings into social, into social textures. In other words, what children could learn from parents became less obvious than what parents did not know and children did. And I think that was a very important moment in which you have the, uh, the kind of hostility, the presentist hostility to the past beginning to acquire the form of an ideology. And if you look at the writings in social sciences and elsewhere in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s, you'll find that it becomes, number one, increasingly detached from history. My own discipline, sociology, uh, a kind of historical amnesia kind of kicks in where you're just not interested. Uh, all that you're interested in is making a distinction between modern times and traditional times. What you also have is a kind of ideological, moral, distancing from what has gone on beforehand. The fourth phase, and this is the phase that we're in now, more or less, I call the phase where the past is seen as clear and present danger. In other words, the past is not only malevolent, you know, in terms of its influence, the past is actually dangerous. It's a direct threat, not to the people that lived before. So the Holocaust is not just a threat, the Jewish people that were herded into the death camps, it is a threat to us now, right? And, and the values and 
and the attitudes and the behavior of people hundreds of years ago is not just a threat to you know sort of the people that lived in those days. It threatens us kind of directly. And I think in in, in recent times the pathologization of the past has taken such a powerful present that it's become a, a taken for granted outlook permeating all the educational and cultural institutions of society. Historical continuity is represented by its opponent as a curse. And gradually what you have is a, is a movement towards what I called in my writings, year zero history, where everything before year zero, which is usually 1945, but increasingly it's, it's today, is, is the bad old days, not the good old days, but the bad old days, and you begin uh, by declaring that uh, the older generations are bankrupt, their cultural tradition needs to be rejected, and we begin anew. It gives presentism a clear uh, sort of uh, uh, kind of uh, methodological form. I think this, this standpoint obviously is most eloquently and elaborated in Germany because of their own Nazi experience, where you have concepts like nullpunkt, you know, zero hours or stunde null, where, where you have the zero hour notion becoming really important. But the European Union itself has also, you know, sort of began to adopt it. Now, the consequences of that is that the past then becomes a, a very important political issue, which is uh, related to the points that James was uh, referring to earlier on, because if the past is malevolent and is still haunting us today, uh, uh, what you have is a situation where increasingly the, the weaponization of a male malevolent past leads to conflicts uh, being fought out in the present in relation to that. So I think that's quite important. I think one point we should remember that, that's often overlooked is that this hostility towards the past, which very in a very limited way resembles some of the reactions of the past in the previous hundred years, is very different in one important sense. And that is that in, the past, in, the, in, in previous times, the hostility to the past was coupled with a positive orientation towards the future. It very often had a very futurist element to it, a very modernist element to it. Whereas today, the current reaction to the past is not guided by any positive future-oriented commitment to progress. So for example, uh, the commitment to decolonize the curriculum, the commitment to decolonize history is not really uh, very much about, you know, kind of building a new future. It's very much kind of uh, sort of uh, very much committed to a phenomenon that is quite unique in many ways, which is the phenomenon of readjusting the past. I and mean, that's really what its politicization means. You are readjusting the past as you're uh, declaring war against it. So what we have with this readjustment of the past is, is a new paradox, which is well worth uh, discussing and struggling. And, and the paradox is, is that in the very moment that we're demanding that we need to settle score with the past, it has an unprecedented presence in the, in the public life of the Western world. In the very act of seeking to gain revenge against the past and the, and the misdeeds committed 20th century ago, people are busy developing their identities through the process of doing that. 
know, I am this person who's actually rooted in what they are reacting against. And it seems that what has happened, and this is one of the most unique features of current presentism, is that the boundary between the present and the past has completely disappeared to the point at which cultural institutions gradually and, and, and but casually and promiscuously go back and forth. I think this trend is particularly evident in museums in British societies where many curators have adopted the habit of attaching beware signs on old artifacts and works of art to inform visitors of the cultural crimes and sins associated with them. And when I argued with one of these curators, why are you doing this? I mean, why should anybody have to be given a trigger warning when they see an old African mask at the Pitt River Museum? What's the point of this? And she kind of looks at me as if I'm a complete moron and says, actually, what you don't realize, Frank, is that people get traumatized and psychologically disturbed by this. And that's really, to me, the hypothesis of presentism, where people don't just simply get traumatized by the bad things that people do to them in, in the here and now, but they get traumatized by an artifact that has occurred later on. And, you know, and, and therefore what you've got is a situation where increasingly people relate to the past as if it's much more real, much more here in the present than in the past. So, you know, uh, when, we did, when, when we talked about being under the spell of the past, under the spell of the present, uh, this, I think, is a, is a very, very good example of this, where the present and the past have this uh, intimate relationship with one another. And that's why you'll have a situation where people who are into iconoclasm of destroying statues relate to the destruction of statues in one of two ways. They hate the statues because they're old, and therefore very often they will destroy statues that aren't even objectionable given their own you know, politics. So you have Black Lives Matter and anti-racist protesters destroying statues of Lincoln and other kind of figures who are, you know, who are the anti-racist of, of their time. So you destroy them because they're old, but also you destroy them because in the very act of seeing them, as many Oxford students said, you become psychologically disturbed. You know, it represents, it's a bit like being harassed. You know, it's almost like projecting the Me Too movement of being harassed onto uh, the fetish of a statue and kind of reacting in that particular way. So this is the situation that we're in. And uh, I just want to end on by just kind of uh, insisting that we need to understand this paradox of the past, this uh, rejection and its obsessive embrace, because if we take another step behind this discussion, we can understand that it, even with the best effort, it's not really possible to abolish the past. It's not really possible to invent a fictitious year zero. As Eric Hobsman explained, and I'll quote him, I don't quote very many people, he says, to be a member of any human community is to situate yourself with regard to one's past if only by rejecting it. The past is therefore a permanent dimension of the human consciousness, an inevitable component 
of the institutions, values, and patterns of human society. So the past is not a phenomenon that is external to the individual or the community that they inhabit. From the point of view that children become humanized and socialized, they become aware of the fact that what preceded them has an important bearing on who they are. The past is an integral component of human consciousness and society's reaction to, its, uh, to it are communicated in ways that we really need to understand. Because you see, the thing about the past uh, that's really quite important is that we do not just make the world, we find it and we remake it. And that's really something that both the left and the right really do not understand and, and I really kind of grapple with. The past, it seems to me, is something that we find. It's a gift. You know, it's a gift from our ancestors. But we have this capacity to remake it should we want to. But if we reject the past in the way that is the case today, we annihilate some of the most fundamental dimensions of our humanness, of our humanity. So in today's condition, when the past is pathologized so much, we have a duty, an unprecedented duty, to take it far more seriously than previous generations in modern time. We gotta both respect it, we gotta both understand it, but in particular, we have to be in a position where we can begin to take on and challenge this malevolent presentist force that kind of encourages a form of moral complacency and self-congratulation on our past. I think this is really important for us because an om the, omnis the omnipresent, omnipresent presentism, I can never pronounce omnipresent, but it's the omnipresent presentism matters, not only because it distorts the past, but because it also forecloses the future or the possibility of imagining a different future. But an exploration of that problem is for a different time. Thank you. You've been listening to a lecture from Professor Frank Faraday entitled A War on the Past. The talk was given at the Academy Online, held in April 2021, as part of a series exploring the theme, The Use and Abuse of History. You can catch up with all the lectures right here on this Ideas Matter podcast, so do make sure and subscribe through your usual channels. The Battle of Ideas Educational and Citizenship Charity runs a number of additional projects, including Debating Matters Schools Debating Championships and Living Freedom, the annual residential school for young people to explore historical and contemporary ideas related to liberty and freedom. To find out more, visit our website, theboi.co.uk. If you can support our work with a donation, then we'd be most grateful. You can do that via the donate button on the website. We'll be back soon with Dr. Tim Black giving the lecture Critique or Conspiracy? What was the Frankfurt School? 